Hello and welcome to Keeping It Real, where we're going to dive into the mysterious world of plastic surgery. My name's Alex, and each episode I'm sitting down with the respected surgeons Dr. Richard Bloom and Dr. Kim Taylor from Replastic Surgery, and we're going to ask all the hard questions that you want the answers to. Moist and not coming in and saying, I want to look like Posh Spice or Pamela Anderson. And so it can be quite life-changing for them. And um, we see improvements in their self-esteem, their confidence. If someone's had good work done, then no, I don't, I don't believe it is obvious. If you're having a breast augmentation, you, know, you don't want to be going to the plastic surgeon who does road trauma. Every year, thousands of women have breast surgery, whether it's a lift or an implant. And while it's everywhere online, breast augmentation is still a very mysterious realm. But for the surgeons at Replastic Surgery, it's a world that they experience every single day. Um, so today, uh, we'll be talking all about breast surgery, uh, the ins and outs, everything that we need to know. You guys have obviously been doing it for a very long time. How many breast surgeries would you say that you've been you've done in your career, Richard? Yeah, well... Uh it's probably in the thousands. So uh, I've been uh, doing plastic surgery for 16 years and, and four years of training before that. Uh, and for the majority of my career, I've, I've done a lot of breast surgery. So in that time, it's probably thousands of procedures. But uh, more specifically, in the last uh, five years, um, my, my practice has become almost solely focused on breast surgery, as has Kim's. Mm. And is that because it's what's popular at the moment or? Kind of, but, but also, um, when we started, we, we, we wanted to create a practice that was very focused. Um, and, uh, the more you do something, the, the, the better you get at it. So when plastic surgery is such a broad field, so, you know, you can be operating on someone's toe, their hand, their head. So it's a lot of operations. So, um, it all just gets a bit, the skill set gets diluted out a little bit. So by focusing on really sort of three main procedures, you just get super um, skilled and, and, and proficient at doing them. Um, and so you know, we felt that that's the space we wanted to be in and focus on that. Mm. And, and it, you certainly do see it as a surgeon. You just get so comfortable doing the same procedure day in, day out. Mm. And Kim, what about you? How many, how many do you reckon you've done? Uh, probably similar to Richard, except I've been in practice for 11 years. Um, so a little bit less than him. Um, but again, the um, focus being on breast and body type of plastic surgery procedures has uh, made a big difference in terms of really just um, focusing on specifically those uh, procedures that we have a better skill set at rather than trying to be everything to everyone. Um, being able to then refer patients on for operations that we would performing less of and losing skills and those. And so um, the real aim to be um, experts in specific areas um, so that patients feel a lot more confident mm. and comfortable coming to us because uh, you know that's really what we do. And for both of you, obviously you've been in it for a long time. So how has things changed? Have you seen a lot of change in terms of the surgery, but also uh, the science and everything that, that goes behind it? What are the differences? I, th I think probably the main change, technically there've been refinements rather than dramatic changes. Um, maybe 
Breastfeeding action has changed is one operation that probably has changed dramatically from a technical point of view. So, um, 15 years ago when I was just starting doing breast reductions without getting too complicated, um, th there's three components of breast reduction. You reduce the weight of the um, breast tissue, you reposition the nipple, and then you tighten the skin uh, envelope. So we pretty much, apart from a sort of a small period where there was a slight variation, we've always done what's referred to as the anchor scar or the T, T inverted T scar. Um, but the, so when we're moving, when we're moving the nipple, you need to keep the nipple alive. Um, and 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, the nipple was always kept alive from below, which meant that the bulk of the tissue, um, was in the lower half of the breast. And what that led to was, um, the, the breast shape dropping out over time and used to lead to a lot of wound healing problems at that T junction, because that was where all the weight was. And then probably in the early 2000s, there were, there were some influential plastic surgeons, um, one from France, a couple from Canada, who actually turned it around and started doing it, uh, keeping the nipple alive from the, the tissue above. Um, and that had two flow-on effects. One, the blood supply was more reliable, but also it, it um, kept the uh, bulk of the breast tissue in the cleavage area and took the weight off the lower part of the wound so that the long-term shape was better, less wound breakdown problems, um, and, and better cleavage. So that's probably one operation that's changed pretty dramatically mm. from a technical point of view. Um, the, the other, um, aspect is probably more in how practices have set up. Um, Kim, what about you? You've been in the industry for over a decade. How do you think things have changed in terms of practices as well as safety? Um, certainly the way we are running our practice now is quite different to what it was 10 years ago. As I mentioned earlier, that um, previously plastic surgeons and even we were trying to do everything for everyone. And the way that our practice has changed over the last uh, three or so years is really focusing on breast surgery and tummy or body contouring surgery. And I think having a whole practice environment built up around that, all of our staff, everyone's all on the same page. Rich and I run a practice together. Whilst we have individual patients, we have a very, very similar approach to everything we, that we do. We are available to cover each other and um, look after each other's patients if the other one's not available or away and also the a lot of our focus through the practice is not just about doing an operation for someone it's about the whole journey from pre-operative all through a consent process uh, having all of our staff all aware of the whole process as well and then a lot of long-term follow-up um, including extensive scar management for our patients and really being available as required 24-7 afterwards and, and that's part of the patient safety and part of their journey as well knowing that one of us will always be there for them. And does this mean that the end in the end look the end feel is better than it's been um, in the past and and safety I guess is a big thing is that that's really improved I'm guessing? Um, we think so like patient safety is is 
always one of our number one priorities and, and certainly we wouldn't embark on offering someone surgery if we didn't think it was the right or safe thing to do for them. And I think having a focus on a few procedures uh, really means that we're particularly skilled in those and so that if something untoward does happen that we have all the skills and ability to be able to fix problems as well uh, on those rare occasions that they happen. Have you guys found that there is much more demand out there for breast surgery? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that's that's probably another thing that has changed. The accessibility and availability of breast plastic surgery, whereas you know, maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it was really thought to be something that was done in maybe you know California or just in Australia, a Sydney or Gold Coast sort of thing. I think women today uh, know a lot more about the surgery and so, and they're much more open about having it. So we've seen on our own social media platforms, the openness of uh, our patients to share their journeys and their stories and talk about it. And I think even um, five years ago, women were not doing that. And so that then opens opens up the opportunity um, and understanding of what's involved for new patients. So recently we started our own closed Facebook group and it's been fascinating for us to sit and watch and see our patients interacting with new patients and with previous patients and answering questions that we actually don't know the answer to. So for example, uh, a common question is, I've got two children, I'm about to have a tummy tuck, can anyone tell me what it's like looking after the children after that? As surgeons, we can give you general guidelines of what you can do and, and can't do, but neither of us have had a tummy tuck mm. so you, and, and, and then had to look after, certainly then had to look after kids. So it, 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 for someone who's actually just been through it and explained, well, you know, I could do this after a week and every patient's obviously different, but it just gives them so much more insight and they realize that it's maybe not as uh, difficult or as scary as that what they maybe perceived it to be. Mm. I think that when patients are coming for their first consult with us, they're, they're so much more informed than what they have been in the past in terms of the whole procedure and the whole journey as well. And like obviously we still guide them and give them advice on exactly what procedure is suitable for them, but they seem to have a lot more information and knowledge well before they come to us and they seem to be more suitable, like they're self-selected almost in a way that they know that they're essentially choosing the right procedure with the right surgeon um, at the right time even as well. Is this because obviously the taboo is disappearing with, with platforms like Instagram and those kind of things and it, it, women kind of educating themselves in those areas and, and coming to you? Absolutely. And I really, there's concern regarding those platforms, I guess, about whether it's pushing people to have unnecessary surgery, but I think it's actually almost completely the opposite. Like uh, women are uh, getting a lot more information from those, seeing results that they like, seeing results they don't like. So they're actually coming to us um, with a clear goal and a clear picture of what their issues are and what their concerns are and and also about the the taboo, I guess, of it and that particularly for tummy tuck, for example, that a lot of these women are not having it as a cosmetic procedure. It's it's a functional procedure as well with a medical benefit. And so they are learning that from other women who've been through the same journey. So kind of realising that it's not 
it's not such a no-no type of area to be discussing. Mm. Well, just to compare and contrast, when I started in, in practice, digital photography we had, but we didn't have great systems for, for showing patients photos. Compared to now, Kim and I, our library of photos is it's about 40,000 photos, before and after photos. And we've got a really professional setup in how we do our before and, fo- before and after photos. So everything's very standardised, the lighting, the focal length of the camera, the background, the position of the, the patients. So we've got a dedicated staff member who takes those photos. So for starters, we can show patients really accurate photos. And when you've got such an extensive library, because it's not just a matter of showing someone a breast augmentation and that's what a breast augmentation looks like. You need to find someone who has a similar starting shape and wants a similar finishing shape to give them a realistic understanding of what to expect. And when we're focused on just a few procedures, you build up a massive catalogue of patients. So almost invariably, you can find someone who is a pretty good physical match um, and, and then a post-operative photo that that patient is trying to achieve. Um, and so give them a, a much more realistic idea of what to expect. The, the other thing was, and this is, this is hilarious when I think back to this, uh, when patients first started coming to see me for this sort of surgery, and they'd say, do you have any patients that I could speak to who've been through it? And so if we go through our list of patients and ring various people and say, would you mind if a patient rang you and asked you about your experience? And it was a very laborious task. And, and in the end, they would end up maybe having we'd find one person who could they could speak to. But as Kim's alluded to, with um, uh, social media platforms, our patients are direct messaging previous patients and asking, asking them without our involvement at all. So it's, it's very independent of us. Uh, we're not telling them who to speak to and who not to speak to. Uh, also, sort of the review sites, so Google reviews, I mean, um, you know, they're real reviews and, and you, you just read them and you you get a much better understanding of what it's about. So all of those things help in reducing the sort of taboos of of plastic surgery. There's much more of a focus on natural results, driven both by us and by predominantly by patients, but sort of that really fake uh, Californian breast augmentation, like the Pamela Anderson type look. I think that's how women used to perceive, oh, that's what a breast augmentation is going to look like. Is there still a demand for that look or has that really disappeared? I mean, in our, in our practice, very rare. So our patients predominantly are requesting a very natural look. They want, they, they want basically they pitch it that they want, obviously their close friends and family will know, but if, if they saw someone down the beach who they didn't know, they wouldn't suspect that they'd had a breast augmentation. Can you guys walk down the street and say, yep, she's had one, no, she hasn't had one, or is it, is it to you, is it obvious, or is it? Uh, sometimes, for sure. But if, if someone's had good work done, then no, I don't, I don't believe it is obvious. Also, sometimes you can look at our post-op photos, and unless you're looking closely at the scars, it's hard to know whether they've had a breast reduction or a breast augmentation. So the aim is to have, even in a reduction, a nice outcome. It's not just purely about we're making your breast smaller because you've got back pain and neck pain. We're also aiming to have the breast look aesthetically pleasing as well. And patients are demanding that too. The other thing on that 
similar to the walking down the street, going off the topic slightly, but with fillers and anti-wrinkle type of treatment, again, the, the taboo around that is a lot less, but people still coming in really with the image of these massive trout pout lips and saying, I, I don't want that kind of look. And most of the time when we're seeing patients that and the aim is to have that natural look. And so, yeah, I couldn't walk down the street and say that person's had fillers or anti-wrinkle because if they've had it, the work done well, you're not being able to tell the difference. They're just looking. With the in regards to the fillers, and it's what Kim's talking about, is predominantly in the lips. Um, I call that the, the Area 51 look. So in America, they used to have, there was this site that they thought the American government kept all the aliens. And so if you're an alien and you're in Area 51 and everyone looks like an alien, then you think that's kind of normal. So I think, and expanding on what we were saying, our practice isn't like that. So we're a non-Area 51 practice. So if you're in Area 51 practice and everyone is sitting there with you know, massive fake breast implants, huge lips, and you're looking around the waiting room, you think that that's normal because that's what everyone else looks like. So you're kind of like a man in black, like you really want to help these women. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Camouflage themselves. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, what do, what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are about particularly breast surgery? Do you think there's still a lot of taboo around it? or I, I certainly think, yes, there is. Probably more so in the older generation. The younger generation and those in their 30s, 40s, even 50s now, it's a lot more open. And these are women that have access to a lot of social media accounts and Instagram and Facebook. And so it's being talked about a, a lot more. Um, yeah, one of the misconceptions definitely is that any breast implant's going to look fake and that that's most definitely not the case. It can be achieved if that's what the patient wants, but that's very uncommonly so. But generally the patients that we see, that the first thing they say is, I want to look natural, I don't want anyone to know when I go to school drop off that I've had um, implants done. One of the other misconceptions, particularly about breast implants, is that they have to be changed at 10 years. That's something that's been around for quite some time that really, really isn't true. I do say to all my patients that have a breast augmentation that there's a 100% chance at some point in their lifetime they're going to need to have further surgery on their breasts. We can't predict exactly when that's going to be. The style of implants that we're using at the moment hopefully in the 20 plus years, but the main thing is that they have to be aware of their own body, any change, um, and that's when things need to be looked at. But uh, we're more than, always have an open door policy, so if anyone's got any implants or any issues that they want looked at, then to be coming back and seeing us. But it's definitely not a, okay, at 10 years, it's like you have to get your new tyres. Um, mm, so it's not like a car service, Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I had a patient exactly like that this week. She'd had breast augmentation done by a plastic surgeon who's now retired. Uh, they were 20-year-old breast implants. The, the same, exact same type of breast implant that we still use. So the implants that we use are the implants that are still were first on the market in the 1990s. Breast shape was great. She's had a kid since her breast implants. She was happy still with the size. Nothing had really changed. And she was just really inquiring whether something needed to be done. And I said, listen, there's there's no problem. If we change the implant, that may introduce a problem. And I, I ordered an ultrasound just to be on the safe side, make sure there was nothing that we were missing. But exactly as Kim has said, I said, nothing to do here. 
just have your routine breast checks. I mean, the risk of breast cancer, independent of having breast implants, is around one in eight women. So that's a much higher risk of, of anything else or anything going wrong with the implant. And yeah, just to come back and see us if something actually changes, assuming the ultrasound's fine. Is there a way that women can maintain themselves, I guess, in order to avoid things going wrong with implants or is it more just how your body accepts it? Not really. Uh, I mean, I've had a couple of patients now who have had breast implants and have been involved in motor vehicle accidents and the airbags have deployed and smashed straight into their breast implants with absolutely no uh, untoward effects. The main thing is, as Kim has said, is just to be vigilant, just as you would normally, even if you didn't have breast implants, look for any changes, swellings, changes in in shape, um, and obviously lumps, and and then have all the routine screening that you would normally have. So, you know, mammograms to start when you're meant to start having mammograms, and to always come and see us first if there's a problem. And the other thing on that about mammograms is that there is a misconception that you can't have investigations like a mammogram when you do have breast implants. That's not correct either. So um, patients definitely, we encourage them to have their routine screening. It's important that the radiographers and the people that are doing the tests and reading the tests know that there's implants there. But generally the aim is to image the breast tissue, not the implant. So there's special techniques that can be done to not be harmful to the implant and also to, to image and to look at what needs and wants to be looked at. That leads it into why do women generally come to you guys for breast implants or breast augmentation? Generally, women that we see that are requesting breast enhancement or breast augmentation have small breasts or have lost volume from breastfeeding. So they're either young and have never really developed breasts and so they they often say they've never felt particularly womanly, they don't like to wear bathers, they're embarrassed to be um, putting a bikini on and going to the beach. And then the other cohort of women are ones that have had children, um, they've completed their family generally, and they've liked their appearance and their the size and the look of their breasts when they were either pregnant or breastfeeding, and then they've lost that volume after either pregnancy or breastfeeding, and they are generally just wanting to replace that volume back and sometimes improve on the shape that they've lost during that time as well. As we've said earlier, most are not coming in saying, I want to look uh, like uh, Posh Spice or Pamela Anderson. It's more just an enhancement of what they already have, a natural shape um, to feel a bit more womanly, be able to fit clothing and togs and bathers in particular um, better without feeling like they're having to add in chicken fillets or double padded bras. And do you find that most people's self-confidence does improve after they've had breast implants? Or Absolutely. And like a really important part of our screening process when we first have a consultation with a patient is to assess their motivations for surgery and to ensure that their, I guess, of sound mind and that the reasons for them wanting to go through surgery, and this goes with any of the procedures that we perform, are genuine and that they have realistic expectations and they can verbalise exactly what their concerns are and what the outcomes that they want are. And most of the patients that we see really come in and can really explain all that extremely well. 
it's pretty rare that someone is, comes in and is like, my boyfriend wants me to do this and I don't really want to. But, you know, certainly those, those are massive alarm bells and we really spend at least an hour with each patient going through a full history of those kind of um, the indications and what they're after, but also a full medical history as well to make sure that they're suitable for any types of surgery. And in the case of when you think it's someone where it's not necessarily them that wants the surgery, what do you do in that case? So certainly the first thing is to not immediately operate on them, um, to really try and get to the bottom of the the reasons why they're coming in. And if there's any concerns regarding either psychological issues is that to refer them back to their GP or refer them to be getting assessed by a, a different type of professional than ourselves and most definitely not to be offering them surgery until we're absolutely sure that they they really are aware and know and want that, that it's for them. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think people underestimate the confidence aspect of it and also the fashion aspect of it. So fashion, I think the f- clothing fashion has driven some of the uh, requests as well. So the plunging necklines and, and things like that in terms of then having breast shape. And it's a really interesting, you know, we, we touched on the stigma before. It's really interesting that it's really well established for someone who has, has been through breast cancer and has has had to have a, a breast removed surgically. It's well established that they do much better if they've had a, a breast augmentation in terms of their uh, self-esteem and confidence. But women who, for whatever reason, don't develop breast tissue during puberty, they are still, there are elements of, the, of society who judge them differently. And even though they've arrived at that point very differently, the end point is still the same. They, they don't have breast tissue and they don't feel maybe feminine or they don't feel confident. They can't fit out clothes. You have, they're amongst the most grateful patients in our practice in, in terms of how it helps with their self-esteem and, and confidence. And is there ever a case where you have to say no to a patient? Yeah, um, there is. I mean, Kim just touched on some of them, obviously for medical reasons, if they're, they're, they're not you know, safe for an anaesthetic. That's probably uncommon in the breast augmentation population. Probably the most, the two, two most common scenarios that I would see where I would say no is occasionally women would come in and in, in the group that Kim was talking about after pregnancies who need to have a, a breast lift, which involves more scarring than, than a, a, breast, a breast augmentation alone. And they're, they're not prepared for that. They don't realize that they, that they need that to get the result that they want to have. And, you know, maybe another surgeon has said to them, no, we can maybe get away with just a, a breast augmentation, but you sort of know that that's not going to be the right result for them. For most of them, once you explain it, and, and um, we've got a pretty extensive consultation process where we can explain it and draw on patients and do simulate, we've got a, a 3D a simulator and show them what the effects would be with or without the lift. For most patients, they accept that and, and they're happy to go down that path. Um, but occasionally they, they think, no, 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 I don't want those scars. Um, and they, they're trying to push you to just do a breast augmentation. You have to say no. The other time is when someone wants something that is more than two standard deviations away from the norm. And you just know long-term, like really big implants that really don't fit their frame, don't fit their soft tissue, 
um, that you know long-term are going to give, um, cause significant problems. And in those, those cases, I'll, I'll say no to them as well. Do you ever fear that those women go on to a different surgeon I, and, and request something that they know is not good for them? I know they do. <laughs> uh, they definitely do. I mean, there, there are some, some surgeons who, yeah, their practice is, is very different to what ours is and, and most of their patients are that type of patient. But also then sometimes we see them back again after they've had those procedures and they're not happy. And it's really difficult. You're on the back foot once someone's already had an operation that they're unhappy with um, to then try and correct that. All right. Well, thanks for coming in today, Richard and Kim. And the next episode, we'll be talking all about the journey of breast augmentation and um, how to choose the right size and how to get the cleavage that you want. Thank Thanks you. for coming, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Keeping It Real. To keep up with our next episodes, go and subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you have further questions or want to take the next step, visit www.replasticsurgery.com.au or follow Re on social media. If you want to put any questions to our experts or join the conversation, head on over to our Re Girls Facebook group. 